EMSradio.com. EMS information for the next generation. The EMS Garage is a production of EMSradio.com. You can find us on Facebook. Just search EMS Garage. You can find us on Twitter at EMS Garage. Email us, emsgarage at gmail.com. Or call us, 303-720-6001. The EMS Hello, everybody, and welcome to the EMS Garage. We are here. Sorry we took a week off. wasn't really my doing. It was my Mac, and I'm sure everybody will give me a ribbing because I use a Mac, and yes, I don't have a backup computer, and blah, 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 blah. But when you have a Mac, you really don't need a backup computer. So anyway, I'm Chris Montero, the Geeky Medic, the host of this crazy band of brothers and sisters talking about EMS every week. This week we have a fun panel, and we're going to actually rehash an issue because Scott cures on, and he thinks it's kind of fun. And then we're going to hopefully get to talking about a new drug, and not the Huey Lewis kind, just a new drug. So joining me first is Miss Carissa Caramanis O'Brien. Hello. Hello there. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Right on. I can't wait to... You need... Right at the top of the show, you've got to plug where we're going to be in about six, eight weeks. Eight weeks. Yeah, don't get out of yourself. I, I'm so excited. I know. I am too. actually had a really exciting call today about some more plans for the show. I'm really excited. So we're going to be at EMS World Expo, August 30th to the 2nd of September, and uh, in Las Vegas... And uh, we're going to be broadcasting a bunch of podcasts from the show floor. Um, we're going to be doing a bunch of fun social media projects, and it's just going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait. We're actually going to work in Vegas? Seriously? We're going to work. But oh, man. Our work is fun, and then we're going to have more fun. True. Okay. All right. I like, I like more fun. It all okay. works. Out. All right. I like that. Well, thank you for coming on tonight. I really appreciate it. Happy to. Right on. Also joining me tonight is Mr. Russell Stein. Hello, sir. Hello. <laughs> How are you, Scooby-Doo? Uh, I'm doing fine. You are. Uh, you sound great. Yeah, well, I'm, I feel much better this week than I have in the past couple of weeks, but that's all going to be ruined on Tuesday. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, my brother. Well, And, and I turned 27 today, so... Oh, well, happy birthday. Happy Thank birthday. Thank you. Well, you were born in 1984. We were talking about that earlier, so. Yes. I know. Well, I'm glad to uh, have you here. And are you you're coming to Vegas or no? You're, you, we've already I, talked about I, this. You're not. I am not. Ugh. I think we're going to go to Gulf Shores as a family vacation, so. Good for you. I know. Yeah, it'll be fun. I know. So look out, Gulf Shores. Yeah, man. Watch out for the, watch out, watch out for Russell. And the family. <laughs> uh, also joining me tonight is Mr. David Koenig with his Cheerios. 
No, no, sorry. Fruit Loops. Fruit Loops. I know. I know. I, one's got sugar, one doesn't. I forget. Oh, no, no. There's more differences than that. There's like <laughs> folic acid differences and carbohydrates and vitamin differences. Cereal is an art. Yeah, right. And Cheerios are healthy for your heart, whereas yes. Fruit Loops Where Fruit probably Loops are not. Crazy. Exactly. Yeah. Right. How are you doing? Good, good. I, I really can't complain. Uh, the summer hasn't really... Uh, been too bad uh the humidity hasn't been too bad so i have no complaints oh i know nice to have you on sir thank you thank you also joining us tonight is miss sam bradley hello hello there from california yeah we just had a really weird unexpected rain the other day like this monsoon and then it went away it was weird we have we've had the weirdest weather here and i too am excited about expo to get yes. to see all of you and do fun things and drink lots of wine you're just drinking Ooh. wine in vegas because oh, no. i've heard i've heard <laughs> they have like blue and red drinks and whatever anybody hands me i'll drink it and happy birthday russell oh. Oh. we'll drink lots of things and have fun. <laughs> i'm sure we will uh-huh. Also joining us tonight, Mr. KBD, Kyle David Bates. Hello, sir. Hey, Chris. How are you? Good. I thought you were playing hockey or something stupid. That's tomorrow night. Oh, tomorrow night. Tomorrow well, night. Well, but to, we're, we're going to tape another episode tomorrow morning, so you could hop on for that. Yeah, I'll work. be working. Oh, darn. All right. Well, maybe maybe we'll tape the episode that doesn't come out of this episode tomorrow morning or whatever. Okay, cool. Well, I'm glad you're on. Glad you're All right. On. appreciate it. And you're going to join us? You're not joining us because you're having a baby. Ugh. Well, I'm not having a baby. Well, you, it looks like it, but no, 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 no. You're actually having a baby. Your wife's having a baby, so that My means wife's you a baby, are. Yes, that means you are too. Oh, kind of. Yeah. Just wanted to give you that heads up. Yeah. Oh yeah, number okay. two, replacing the first one. <laughs> He's not going to see five. <laughs> I was just going to say that old Bill Cosby thing where he said, "I, you know." I can I make more of you, world. exactly, and I can make more of you, or whatever. Yeah, that was good. Absolutely. <laughs> well, there you go. Right on. Thanks for coming on, brother. Thanks, Chris. Finally, Mr. Scott Keir. Hello, sir. Mr. Chris Montero. How are you, sir? I'm good. And you are joining us in Vegas, though. I certainly am. I am, I am second counting time. the days, let me tell oh, you. I, I can, I'm actually doing a week out there, and it's, uh, <sighs> it's going to be quite the experience. Yeah. Um, can, I, can I just give you one hint? Sure. Rest your liver now. Oh, you, you'll be fine. Okay, all right. I'm just, I'm just trying to, myself. just trying to give you friendly hints as we go along here. Yeah. Okay. However, it does need to be noted that I am going to be looking for a new darts partner. So, um, anybody with interest? Oh, oh, Scott, oh. Scott, Scott, Scott remember, no further. To, Come on now. You have to <laughs> buy Chris a few glasses of wine before the before the contest, and then it all works out in the end. Fair enough. Oh. <laughs> well, I, just just roofie him. It would work better. <laughs> I'm pretty good nice. if I'm drinking. <laughs> wow. That's exactly right. I'm, I, I can't do it that's, sober. But. His body weight, Tic Tac will knock him out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I love you all. All right, anyway, we're, we're going to start tonight's episode with the... Um, I'm talking about the scathing report that came out of California and fire responses. Apparently, Scott has an issue with it. I don't know. I actually thought it actually um, made a little bit of sense... And actually kind of took the fireside to say, you know, there is a time and a place for fire responses, but apparently Scott didn't agree with me. So, Scott, would you like to tell me why you don't agree? 
Well, now wait a second. It's not that I don't agree, okay? The, the point is, and, and don't miss the point of what this report says. The report does not say that the extra hands aren't needed. The report takes issue with sending the large apparatus with four people on it to get the one trained person there, okay? That's number one. Number two, there is a need to have extra hands there, but it's only if you do EMD, PMDS, whatever you want to call it, for the, you know, maybe your Delta and Echo level calls. Why are we going to have six people standing over the person having abdominal pain? I, I really think that's a little bit of overkill. So what the study found was, and, and what the report found was that the fire apparatus is actually needed truly about maybe four to six percent of the time, whereas the paramedic himself is needed 70 percent of the time with what they're responding to. So why are we sending this piece of apparatus with four people on it to get the one trained person to the scene? And that's where I kind of see it. And, you know, I, 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 I see where there is some truth to this, and I, and I see that where there is some merit to it. Yeah, but the but fire... not all... Go ahead. I was going to say, not all systems are like that, though. I mean, out here, everybody on the engine is trained. It's not just one person. But then did you really need four paramedics standing over the cut finger? Right. Oh, absolutely not. That's called tier dispatching. That's what they need is when they dispatch, dispatch the right assets. So, Sky, I ask you, what would be your alternative for this situation? Well, the, the alternative would be either to, again, I, like Sam said, do some sort of tier dispatch to it where you're, where you're sending them to the appropriate calls, the de- to the Delta-level calls, the Echo-level calls, the more life-threatening stuff, the cardiac arrests, the, you know, the, the severe chest pains, or any instance where there might be a delayed response from the ambulance. That's when you need that first response unit there. I mean, my big question is, is how often, first of all, are the fire engines beating the ambulances there? My second question would be, by how much? And I, you know, if, are, are we going to count seconds in certain situations? You absolutely should. But let's face it. I mean, 80% of the, 80 to 90% of the time, the, the seconds don't matter. It's the minutes that matter. It's the hours that matter with the treatment that we give these people. But I think you have to look at and see, you know, again, you know, look at their system. One issue we have here in Western New York is a lot of our ambulances are delayed at the hospitals. Our hospitals are so backed up. We, we have very little ambulances available. So our first response units, no matter what level they are, are extremely important. Just the other day, uh, I know of, of systems waiting for 15 to 20 minutes for an ambulance, and that's not unusual. And in the city of Buffalo, they go to level zero frequently where they may not have an ambulance for 30, 40 minutes. Well, that's exactly what the study is saying. Look at the system. Maybe the system needs a redesign, and that's exactly what they're saying. I mean, this was a cost-cutting, cost-saving measure. And, you know, you, you can say what you want about what this, what this is going to mean for jobs, but this is, I, I really think, a, a true testament to the differences between EMS service and fire service. Because let's face it, at 3 o'clock in the morning, it might not take the same number of ambulances to cover, you know, an, an area, but it's going to take the same number of people to fight a fire. And that's where you need to start drawing the line between who does EMS and who does fire, because it, I, I really think that it kind of shows a little bit more of the differences between the two systems and between the two professions. Yeah, and there's, like I was saying, now there's, I'm looking at what you guys are talking about, and a difference in our system is very different. Fire, except for two cities that do fire transport, all the transport is private. So if somebody gets tied up in the ambulance, that's the ambulance, or at the hospital, that's the ambulance company's problem is to get somebody out there and to, to manage their their levels. But fire doesn't get stuck doing that. So for us, that's not particularly an issue. But I see what you're saying, Scott. 
Well, Sam, I mean, you said everybody on your engines are trained as paramedics, four people. Would it make more sense to put all four firefighters, paramedics, on an engine and send them to a call? Or would it make more sense logistically to put two of them, let's say, on an expedition or you know, a quick response vehicle and send them out in that? Why, why, why use an expedition? Why don't we turn around, take those four paramedics, put two in one ambulance, two in another ambulance, get a fifth non-certified person as a chauffeur, and if they get a fire call, they just respond to the fire, the chauffeur drives the apparatus, and then they could fight the fire from the, from the engine. Whoa, why, David Koenig. Why, why that's are like, you using that? But that's I thinking know. outside the box, dude. Right. Yeah, I, think, I don't know, yeah, man. EMS-based EMS fire, fire service. service. But now you're talking now you're about, talking about the, issue. the issue. Somebody, we're Somebody back, back, back feeding. Back. Hello? Carissa. Carissa. Oh, Carissa. Can What's wrong? Can you mute us? For some reason, we're getting back feed from you, which is weird. Hmm. All right, anyway. All right, go go. continue. Continue. So, I mean, the thing is, you look at this, and they're, co- they're considering costs. And if and I agree with you, David, you know, adding another, you know, adding an ambulance, you know, or at least, you know, some sort of a, a, a first response vehicle on, but now you're increasing costs as well because now you have another vehicle up, not only the expense of the vehicle, but the vehicle upkeep and maintenance of it. It's funny you well, bring it, that up. What's, what's it's, more importantly, it's a non revenue generating vehicle. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's funny you yep. bring that up because we just started, they just started, uh, they just placed the order for us to get uh, those all, uh, alternative response vehicles. Uh, it just goes back a couple months. Is that now, you know, instead of using the large trucks, now they're going to, uh, now they're going to deploy uh, smaller vehicles, you know, in those places. And uh, honestly, they don't really have a plan, but they've tried a few different methods to see what works. And that was something that was brought up is that they would only send you know, two people off the truck to an, uh, to a, to an EMS call with a, with a unit. And if there was a fire, they would meet the, they would meet the truck on the scene. Uh, that was something that's been discussed and that's been an issue with, uh, that's been a point of contention between the union and, and the, and the city is, is that we're, and my personal point of view on it is, is that I'm more interested in, in our EMS response times, because that's what we do 70% of the time. Uh, and the truck usually arrives after the second or third engine arrives. So it's not going to be that big of a deal if, if, a, if a truck, a large truck, you know, the one with the ladder on the top, shows up late to a call because they had to uh, have somebody else drive it to the scene and then that other crew meet them you know, meet them there. Uh, it's not going to be that big of a deal because, you know, all of us know how to do the basic stuff. So uh, I don't really see that as a, as a big concern here. And we're actually implementing the type of system you're talking about. We have those. We call them QRVs or quick response vehicles. And yeah. it starts with where I spend most of my time out here in the more rural part of our county is with a, a BLS department with, with two EMTs on an engine, which then works along with the ALS QRV. Now, that QRV can decide when they do an assessment what other resources we need. Do we need an ALS ambulance? Do we need a BLS ambulance? Do we need no, no ambulance? Is the patient not going to be transported? And that really helps in resource allocation, I think. And then when we're talking about a county like this, uh, like, like Santa Clara, where it is bitted out, well, maybe you do need to look at the system, and the next time that they put it on RFP, 
maybe the provider handling their own first responses is part of what they put out. I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with that. Then, then the management management of that non revenue generating unit that Dave mentioned is 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 taken care of. It's it's the responsibility of the contractor to, to provider because let's not also lose sight of the fact that that engine that they send out with the four people on it is non revenue generating. So any way that you cut it with that kind of situation, you're 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 generating volume, but you're not really generating anything more than that. And you know, eighty percent of the time, it it just looks to me from where I sit like it, it's more of a, an, an empty call, if you will. Whereas you get on scene and you start your assessment and the ambulance is a couple minutes behind and the patient gets their transport to the hospital and the engine goes back in service. I think like David said, there's other models out there that probably haven't even been looked at. There's, there's so many variations and, and it's going to be different. The needs are going to be different for every community. It's hard to have a one size fits all answer to this. Well, I, I think that's really what the issue is, is that every community is, is, is very individualistic. You're not, the model that works for New York City is not necessarily going to work in, in a rural setting. And what works in a rural setting isn't going to be able to work in, in an urban setting. So, the, you know, the, the whole idea that, okay, you know, this is the model of EMS and this is the standard uh, of EMS that, you know, we want to be able to provide, whereas – you do want to carry your standards relatively universally. In order to do that, your model is going to have to change. Um, and l- let's be honest, especially recently, you know, with the cost-cutting measures and budgets and, and everything else, everyone is looking uh, for ways to, you know, be more efficient and and have more productive. And that and that goes. And that goes for everybody, whether it's a municipal agency, whether it's a private agency, whether it's a, a volunteer agency or, or a, a not-for-profit agency. All the agencies are looking to turn around and make do with what they have because they're going to be getting less, whether it, it be through Medicare, Medicaid reimbursement cuts or whether it be through budget or uh, whichever way their primary funding source is. Yep. Okay, so not to beat a dead horse, but a couple things have happened in Colorado since this article came out. One is um, the city of Greeley. So Weld County is the largest county in Colorado, about 5,000 square miles or so, which has always been served by one agency, Weld County Paramedics. During that time, Weld County Paramedics has done an admirable job of, of serving probably the population can be best described as mm, 70% Medicare, Medicaid, 10% commercial, and the rest is everything else. So can you, uh, so their average bill is about $1,600. Um, so the city of Greeley said that they're not happy with the service and they would like to uh, bid out trying to find out if they can, you know, get a different ambulance service in there. Well, if they did that, that would actually undercut Weld County and pretty much kill the entire system in that area. Well, the fire department has said, oh, whoa, whoa, we can do it. We can do it. We can do it cheaper, better, faster, you know, because we're the fire department. Uh, yeah. So anyway, so part of the part of the reaction to that has been that um, the the fire department, a lot of the backlash has been against the fire department to say, you guys aren't really efficient. Why don't you guys start looking at your business practices and how you can do things and 
and things like that. And then today, Boulder County, which is should not be confused with Boulder, Colorado. Boulder, Colorado is currently served by Primark. Pride Mark paramedics. Um, Louisville, Colorado is served by the fire department. And then there's a couple other uh, disparate fire departments that, that do ambulance transport in Boulder County. So AMR just won a contract to serve Boulder County, which, in, which is, which encompasses, which basically surrounds the city of Boulder, but does not include the city of Boulder. And it's pretty much one call a day. They bid it at a loss. I mean, it, it, am I crazy, or is it time that that both both private ambulance services and fire departments stop try, stop trying to undercut everything else that's trying to go on in EMS and say, oh, we can do it cheaper, better, faster? Seriously, you're going to operate at a loss? Why? I I, I just don't get it. It's all so, about the Benjamins. They're doing that to get the contract. Once they get it, then they think they'll figure it out. But I can't tell you how many of them have done that up here and then fallen on their face. And the original company, which had been good in the first place and had, you know, produced value, ends up going back in in a couple years. It is Metro, but it's AMR. Come on, Real Metro had the same issue. I'm Real amazed. Metro would actually go ahead and buy up these small ambulance services in Pennsylvania, and then realize, oh, we're not going to make any money, and just pick up and leave. And then here's an area now really underserved. Right. So I'm surprised that, that AMR would commercial. do that. It's a tax write-off. No, it's, it's you know, mm. the, way, the way that AMR looks at it is, uh, or I should say any private ambulance, whether you're AMR, Rural Metro, or, or what have you, any private ambulance uh, provider is going to look at it in the long term. They're going to turn around and they're going to say, okay, today I'm going to take it at a loss. However, this gets me into a county that I don't currently serve. Uh, if I have a five-year contract, over the five years, yes, I'm going to have to turn around and, and lay out this cost, okay, uh, assuming it's going to be one call. And over the five years, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to build business in that county that will be able to subsidize that funding. And if at the end of the five years I have not been able to turn around and do that, then at, on, on the next bid I'm going to uh, you know, require a, a, uh, a, a subsidy. Uh, it may not be uh, as much as the, the article that uh, was shared said uh, prior, that the one company had a $392,000 a year subsidy. Um, which to me is actually very reasonable, um, considering the actual cost of uh, a BLS ambulance. I think is 1.3 million a year, and an ALS is 1.7 million a year for 24/7 service. Um, so I, th- I think the 392 thousand dollars is very reasonable. But AMR is going to look at that, and, and they're going to look at that over five years, and they say, okay, that's 1.5 million dollars I'm investing in this county over five years. So let's see what I can develop, and that's and that's really what a, a lot of, of the privates do and, and look at. Um, Royal Metro buying the uh, the small mom and pop companies and then pulling out of the area. That's you know that, that what that is 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 overextension. Um, there was a similar issue in Florida with that, where a, a AMR overextended themselves and pulled out of counties, and um, there was a, a similar issue uh, 
over in in the Midwest somewhere too with uh, with uh, one of the other companies as well. Um, you know, those those are the types of things that do happen. But it, you know, what's what's interesting is uh, the fact that. You have AMR and um, Pridemark that were competing. Uh, Pridemark is generally or has generally been known as a, a Colorado favorite. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a Colorado homegrown uh, company, whereas a- AMR is nationwide. Um, the fact that uh, Pridemark got outbid by AMR isn't surprising. Um, but what is surprising is that, you know, the county turned around and went with the cheaper price as opposed to the homegrown local company. Can I, can I just mention one thing? And I've, uh, I didn't go to business school yesterday. Okay. I didn't go the other day either, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure that if you produce a widget at a dollar loss for every widget and you're never going to make it up in volume, you just can't do it. It's just, it goes against the economic client. There, there's just no way if I'm going to produce something that costs me 99 or that costs me a hundred dollars, but I sell it for 99, I will never make it up in volume. I will always lose money. So that's crazy. But, but, but no, 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 not, wait, that's, I'm, I'm sorry, Dave, go ahead. It's, it's not about making a widget because you're not making a widget. Okay. In this case, here's a case of where you're making a widget and the widget that you made at a $1 loss is now going to grow and increase in value until you wipe out that loss. It's, it's, it's not about, it's not about widgets. It's, it's a, it's a fact of, of putting a home Depot next to a mom and pop hardware store Yep. and underpricing them to the point where the mom and pop hardware store can't compete with the business offers that, that the Home Depot can, can make. So therefore, the mom and pop smaller business goes out of business and the big one stays. But do they eventually raise their prices so they can make more money? Because eventually they want to make more money. Let's not, let's not be unreasonable here. AMR wants to make money. So and does Primark. Yeah, but, but one of the ways they do it, one of the ways they're going to do it, I've seen this wherever I go, is they'll take over big areas, but they don't really staff that many number of ambulances. They just spread their ambulances out a lot thinner. And that's what they don't tell people. That's how they, that's how they make the money. That's how they keep them completely uh, falling on their faces. They just have less ambulances. Oh, yeah, we're covering this area, but we're going to cover this area, this area, this area with two ambulances as opposed to what I was three or four. But they're still in business. Barely. <laughs> well, it's interesting up here. Come on, and your, service, and your service has gone down. Because you're now waiting longer for ambulances. They're they're mandating people to take shifts because they have to maintain their contracts. Of course, you know the minute you get the mandation, there goes your your customer service right through the window, and and that's what you're seeing. You're seeing this. You're seeing that they are covering more and more areas with less and less ambulances. Yeah, but you're also making generalized statement about private services, Kyle. I mean, and that's really, again, not a fair assumption to make. It's it's like what we talked about oh. a month and a half ago. It's about the quality of person that you hire and the quality of person that you put on a truck. Well, and going back to that to that Home Depot versus mom and pop uh, point is that Home Depot can afford to operate at a loss for a lot longer than mom and pop can. Yeah, and that's that's another issue too is that they can underbid another contractor, but. They can they can hold out for a little bit longer. Like if they came in and were competing against you know two or three different companies. I mean, and we have the same issue here is that it, it, is that it's rural metro, 
versus you know all of these smaller ambulance companies. And there's a reason why Rural Metro keeps winning all these contracts is because if they can operate at a loss a lot longer because they have that corporate backing than these smaller mom and pop organizations can. And that's you know, and then Rural Metro comes in, buys them out, to, and then takes up what little contract they had left. So eventually, they're going to make. You know, looking at it in the long term, is that they're eventually going to make money, and that's and that's the concept that that Dave was talking about is that they're eventually going to make money off of this, but they can operate at a loss for a lot longer. Up here, it was completely the opposite. AMR, in their defense, and I worked for them for many years, had two very large counties uh, adjacent to me, Santa Clara being one of them, but but that went to a different company. But they had been in those counties, Alameda being one for 40 years, gave excellent service. There was no issue with the company or their compliance. But another company from out of state came in, is giving everything on, on, on two wheels, four wheels, or six wheels, life pack 15s, power gurneys, and Lucas devices. <laughs> um, that was part of their bid, and they won the bid, um, you know, which put, you know, and this wasn't because this AMR was doing a good job. It was pretty sad to see that. So this does work in opposition sometimes. The big companies do get thrown out because of the lower bid. That's why when you mentioned that, Chris, I was surprised because AMR usually understands how low they can bid, and that's why they get undercut so much of the time. Well, but that's, but that's a, great, a, a great example being that county where AMR has 40 years of service, they know how much it costs to run in that area. They know how much business they've built in. So therefore, they know what kind of stipend and what kind of subsidy that they need. Now, another company is going to come in, and they're going to have the same exact mentality as AMR does in, in Colorado, whereas I know that this is a long-term investment. I'm going for a five-year, a five-year gig, and I'm going to see what I can build up because they don't necessarily know what the actual bottom line is going to be, especially for them if they're, you know, a new company to uh, the, to the to the area. So, I, I and and that's that's exactly what AMR and and Royal Metro and all of the other big companies do when they, when they turn around and 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 bid into these contracts, and this is what the small companies do the exact same thing. But as Russell pointed out, you know the bigger companies generally are able to lose money longer than the smaller mom and pops. The smaller mom and pops maybe they could do that for a year, maybe for two on a contract, but they can't they they can't sustain it for. Uh, anything greater than five years, whereas the, the bigger corporations with the corporate backing and, and so on and so forth they, you know, are able to uh, turn around and do that. Yeah, so who loses, the county and the patient, ultimately? Well, the, the, the question really becomes is, okay, well, how, you know, what, is, what, what, is, what do you value? You know, what, whatever you value in your community, you're going to set in your contract. You're going to set response times. You're going to set, you know, However long it's, it's, uh, your transport times are, if you want to set number of units, you can set number of units. Those, those are all contractual negotiations. So if you, if you as a county set, set a standard and the company comes in agreeing to that standard at this price, the company has to live up to that. If, if they're found not to be living up to that, and that, that does happen on occasion, okay, then the county needs to throw them out. The county needs to be proactive. But if you're a county that's really just, you know, it's like, all right, well, yeah, we'll turn around and we'll take a 15-minute response time as opposed to an eight-minute response time, okay? 
that'll be in the contract, and that's how the counties are getting cheaper prices. So is it, you know, what's good for the patient, what's good for the county? It's about the priorities of the community. This is why, you know, like a a couple months ago, there were two articles in GEMS about Pennsylvania uh, ambulance services. One of them was volunteer service for a community that basically got voted out of existence, and there was another one about uh, another organization that was denied funding. Okay, this is these are votes that that are going on by people in the community. The people in the community are not valuing the service that that these people are providing. And if they don't value the service, they're not going to want to pay for the service. Good point. Well, the other part of that, though, uh, David, is is it's also a failure by us to inform the community. I mean, I, I recently, within the last year, saw a change in a community up by me where everybody decided to move away from the existing model of a third-party municipal service that worked fine with without any issues, one of those, if it ain't broke, don't try to fix it kind of issues, and decided to integrate them into the fire department. And the EMS director, for lack of a better way of describing it, just kind of sat on his hands and let it happen. He didn't do he didn't do enough about it. He wasn't proactive enough and right. he wasn't active enough in educating the community. And that's where we fail. We don't let people know what we do and what they have available to them. So as a result, they worry about response times instead of worrying about the important stuff that happens in the back of an ambulance. Right. And and Scott, yeah. and I, I completely agree with that. And that's why I continue to push for, you know, EMS to to turn around and do a better job at doing that. And, you know, understanding budget restraints and all that that's that's why i'm such a, a loud advocate and proponent and uh for blogging in ems because i think that that is a great way for, for for us to be able to turn around and you know explain to people and educate people our value and and that is something that that we we have failed as as not just an agency but as as an industry and that's something industry-wide which which we need to improve on amen and we all, you know, we just also need to do a better job of, I think, making sure that you know, through using our voice, whether it's blogging or podcasting or what have you, that we're getting, we're making sure that voice is heard by the right people. Because I think both, you know, Dave and Scott, you both make a good point that the, you know, the systems aren't getting the public um, support that they need. I mean, Sunnyvale is a perfect example that's mentioned in that article you know, they've been, you know, experimenting with roaming light response vehicles, which might be a good solution, you know, if not for this case, but, you know, maybe in some other communities. And it, it might have worked really well for them, but they didn't get the support that they needed either from the community or from their own internal, you know, leadership. So clearly there's a communication gap and there's there's some, you know, additional advocacy that needs to happen both on the the part of, you know, internally within the system, but also, you know, among those of us that that have a voice to kind of influence those that can make those decisions. Okay, so Carissa, is that really going to make a difference, though? I mean, do we have a voice? Do we have enough of a voice? Or is it uh, kind of a moot point when it's all said and done? God, I hope not. I mean, yes, we certainly have a voice. And I think um, you know, we're, we're not going to know exactly how much impact we can have until we use the full force of that voice. And, you know, 
until until we're all exercising it and like i said maybe you know maybe we need to take a little bit of a cue from from marketing and you know as much as as some of us might hate to hear that but you know to be more strategic about how we target our messages and 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 gain the ear of the right people um but god if we you know if we just throw our hands up and stop trying we're we're certainly not going to get anywhere oh that's the truth I give up. Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, until services get on board and start adding PIO, dedicated PIO positions. I mean, I I really think that's where it starts. That's how we start educating the public. You know, you, you start having those people who make those contacts and are able to just kind of put themselves out there and, and, and put their their services out there. I mean, we really nationally, we really do a great job, but we do what we do a terrible job at is patting ourselves on the back. And that doesn't mean that you have to, you know, cite specific instances and, and specific calls. And I think that that's what people are afraid of. They're, they're, you know, HIPAA is such a dirty word in this field and everybody is so terrified of HIPAA and it's, it's ridiculous. And I, I really think that that's where a lot of the fear is generated from. And while, you know, you, you don't have to worry about that when you're educating somebody as to what goes on in the back of an ambulance because, you know, the, the, the days of throwing somebody in the back and flying to the hospital are, are far behind us. And there's so much more that we do and there's so much more that we're capable of. And, and people really need to understand it. And they need to understand that our field is, is should be considered more about patient care and, and taking care of people rather than speed and how fast you do it. Who's going to hire a PIO in this economy, though, Scott? I mean, if we don't do it, who's going to do it? You know, the people in, in this podcast at this moment and uh, the ones that are blogging and the ones that are doing video, we're the only ones out there tooting our own horn. And what, what percentage of EMS people and fire people are that really? Um, well, my agency just hired a PR firm. So, you know. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think that it sometimes, because I don't have time. I'm, I'm the chief of a service. I don't have time to sit there and craft messages and figure out what I want to say to the public, but yet our message does need to get out there. And in the overall scope of everything, it's cheap and, or sorry, Hmm. it's inexpensive. Sorry. Sorry, Chris. She would hate me saying cheap. It's inexpensive. And, and, and it, and it's it's not only PIO, it's about marketing. It's about making sure that everybody that wears your uniform understands that you are marketing a product to the public. I don't care if you're private, fire department, third service, hospital-based, whatever. Every time you drive that ambulance down the road, it is a billboard, and you need to realize that. And every time you wear and continue to wear your uniform, you are making a statement. And that statement says... I care about my community and, um, and, and we can go into all the other issues. We can go into fire EMS, whatever we want to talk about that. Fine. Go ahead. But it really comes down to one thing. Are we healthcare providers? If we are, then we need to market ourselves as such. If we're not, then okay, let's, let's talk about the other issues that come up from that. But it's not about anything else other than, providing patient care and what we do with that. And the message gets lost because we have really large fire unions and we have really large multinational and AMR is a multi don't, don't get me wrong. They're a multinational corporation that understands how to market themselves to position themselves into a community to take over. They're not dumb. They make money. And 
so the mom and pop or the local EMS agency or the regional EMS agency or what have you, is at a disadvantage immediately against all of those things because we don't have the voice. And until we craft the message correctly, which is about healthcare, then we, we don't have the upper hand ever. Good point. What do you guys think about the necessity and the importance of, and this is something that's happening here locally, fire departments and even uh, ambulance companies reaching out to social media to try to find an audience there or to tr- try to spread their message through social media? Well, it's, it's just, it's another vehicle and it's, it's wise for them to use that vehicle. I mean, we, you know, there are major metro systems across the country that are doing a great job with public information, but community to community. And certainly as you get into, um, you know, the rural areas, I mean, there is a, there's certainly a dearth in PIOs. Um, but I think the, you know, important point here is that we have so many more mechanisms now for any member, any provider, any, you know, any, anyone really to create, um, a voice and, and have some role, um, of, of sharing public information and certainly for crafting their message and and attempting to, to tell the story of, of their system and the mission that they have. So, you know, again, there's a little bit of an education curve here in letting people know that, you know, maybe you're not a system that's in a position to hire a PIO, but that doesn't mean that that function has to be non-existent. It doesn't mean that, that you just, you know, again, throw up your hands and, and let go of the importance of that role. You have to continually um, tell your story, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Well, and, and, that, yeah, I mean, that and, you know, Greg Freeze, he, he points out in, uh, over at the PIO social media training site, he points out to, to everybody that every single person – has the power to be a PIO, whether you officially make them a PIO or whether you don't. Using social media, every single member of their organization has the power to be to be a PIO. So whether or not you turn around and appoint someone PIO or you, you come out with, with a, a guidebook for your members um, to turn around and create you know, content for your agency, you know, obviously you want it to be in a positive light and, and things like that. Um, your community is going to be looking for you. So that content is going to be out there, whether you have a PIO or not. Uh, the way that it gets focused is, is really up to you. And, and that's really what needs to be done. You need to be able to, to focus the content. Um, it doesn't need to be a full-time job. In fact, I know a lot of PIOs who it's like, oh, well, you know, I do logistics and, you know, on the weekends I do this. And, oh, by the way, I'm the PIO. You know, um, can we learn from the fire service who usually has a dedicated PIO or most um, – you know, or maybe they have one job and are the PIO, but spend a good chunk of time being the PIO. Should we turn around and learn from that? I personally think we should. Is that something that people feel is is of value and are therefore ready to invest in it? I don't think that uh, agencies see that value yet. Um, I think that they're going to see value in a, a PR firm uh, before they, you know, hire an actual PIO. On that note, it was kind of interesting. We had a big meeting 
with a number of chiefs from county departments to discuss social media and the importance of social media. And this is something that you get a lot of variety of opinions on its worth. And what was interesting was that the person that was doing the demonstration uh, brought up, I think it was L.A. City's website and said, "Okay, so what do you see? If you search L.A. City, you get Bing. The first thing that comes up on the search engine is their website. So you see all this positive stuff that they have put up there that they want people to see. So then they brought up one of our departments, and the and the first thing that came up was some negative uh, person's negative review of something that happened with the department, and it was it was kind of a mind blower." to realize that when these people search for something, what are they going to see? So the value of a good website can't be uh, denied. And, and Brian Humphrey, not you know to mention any names, is that Brian Humphrey at LAFD, he does a really good job at making sure that the message that LA Fire sends out is, is the one that they want to control. Um, I'll bring up an example. My first, my first interaction with, with LAFD Talk, which is – which is LAFD's Twitter handle, uh, one of them, was I was asking a question about who their who the vendor was for their ambulance. I didn't use a hashtag or anything, but within like 10 minutes of me even mentioning, you know, LAFD, I had an immediate response from from their their Twitter handle. They control they control their message extremely well and they do it quickly and that's one of the main things that I've I've tried to get across to both, you know, our union uh, here in in Memphis and and the fire department is that is that we can control the message if we act fast enough and that's something that LAFD does very does very well is that they control their message and, and they they focus it in a, in a way that that is phenomenal. What I was told was they have three full time people that do nothing but social media. Yeah, that's pretty work, rare. They work in like eight hour shifts. Uh, and, and and Brian Humphrey is just one of them, but he's one of the more well-known guys that does it. And they do their they do Twitter and they do Facebook and they do uh, UStream and they they do everything. And and that's part of having that social media guy that handles everything is that they they control their message through social media almost immediately as soon as you mention it. But but they manage this while. Brian and, and Brian was actually the first one, and he really was the one who showed his chiefs the value of this position, uh, of that of the public information officer. Brian and his team handle the social media, but they also do traditional PIO with uh, traditional media as well. Uh, PIO functions as far as press releases and returning phone calls and getting pictures and stuff like that. Well, because it's important to control your message, and if anybody can learn from that, we can. It's not about making sure that the press, you know, is is at your every beck and call. But it's nice when you can give them a message, and then make it so it fits whatever they want. And part of that is also that when something happens bad, because those things do happen sometimes. You want to make sure that you can also control that message. Uh, Carissa's very aware of the issues that go that surround bad that the issues that come out of bad issues or bad bad press or things like that. And controlling that message is just as important as controlling the good message. And if you have a good relationship already with the media, you're going to make sure that that's already in your favor 
when something bad happens. We can't control bad things sometimes. Sometimes they just happen. But we have to also make sure at the same time that we have people on our side that will listen to us and will understand that sometimes those bad things happen. And it, 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 most often it's a fluke. And we shouldn't let one bad thing be the message about our service. But if we haven't created that message for, or we haven't created a relationship with our local media, uh, instantaneously, we're on the defensive as a, as a service. So we've got to make sure that we're, we're doing it right. And it's not just the media either. It's with your community as well. I mean, the, you know, the foundation of a good crisis communications plan is, you know, if you, if you bring it down to the most simple element, it's, you know, being there before the crisis, you know, having established a relationship with your community and with your media prior to the, the crisis occurring, and then simply knowing your story well. You have to have those message points worked out before you need them. And certainly when a crisis occurs, that's not the time to start, you know, putting bullets together. Um, so it's, yeah, it, it's, it's simple stuff, but it takes, it takes an effort. And, and like Dave said, it, if you've got a, a PIO, you've got a, a team of three or two or one or t- 10, fantastic. But if you don't have somebody that has PIO on their business card, that doesn't relinquish the, the, the department or the system from, you know, putting that effort forth and being ready. So Scott, you said you wanted to say something, but you've been like so remarkably quiet. Why won't you say anything? Oh no, I'm I'm just taking this in. I mean, you know, it's 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 just so true. I mean, we need to do a better job of getting our message out there. We we've we've banged our head against against walls with this for years, and I I, I think that we're getting better, and and it's because of people in our community. I think you know I, we're. We're responsible for getting a message out there, and nobody is responsible for making our industry and our profession into something better than we are. You know, no, nobody nobody should take more responsibility in that than we than we take in, you know, our own future. And I really think that we look to others to do too much for us, and and it's time for that to change. And you know, you can talk about dedicated PIOs or part time PIOs or whatever, but we need to do something. And I I really think that. You know, we have some great ideas here, and and you just need the people who are able to make those decisions are are the ones that need to listen and and push it forward. Yep. So, do we want to open up the Mac versus Pete? No, 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 no. I'm just teasing. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm getting a Mac in a couple weeks. I'm very excited about it. I've had PCs are making me crazy. I'm done. I got. I'm becoming a Mac person. If that makes you feel good, Chris. Okay, gotcha. So, quick question to everybody on the panel. Have have we as the EMS industry as a whole done a good job at crafting our message for the rest of the public? And and I mean all the disparate industry or all the disparate industry experts in our, you know, like NAEMT and all of the, all of the multiple letters in our industry that try to, that try to be the advocates for us. Have they done a good job or, or have we failed because we are so 
disparate and we can't agree and we have turf and all of those issues. You know, I just, I want to get your opinion. Uh, to keep the podcast uh, short uh, and not a three-year discussion in short, my answer is no. I would Here agree with go. Mr. Koenig 100%. I mean, not, not to dismiss the many efforts by many individuals and many organizations to, to you know, to try to, to continue to do better. But, I mean, I think everyone agree that we can still do much better. What though, Carissa? What's, Carissa, what's the answer? You're I'm always, a diplomat. Sorry. You're always such a diplomat. I was just gonna say that. I'm like, she is. Why? Why would you take their side? I'm sorry. You know I, I'm they, not. I don't take sides. But you know what? So, all right. This is just an example. I just came from DC. Um, I was there Monday and Tuesday at the um, National EMS Culture of Safety Strategy Conference. Brought a bunch of. Um, federal partners and, uh, you know, many of the industry associations together had, you know, one or multiple representatives there in a, in a room, you know, it was maybe 80 people in a room to really hash out a strategy for, um, you know, establishing and fostering a culture of safety in EMS long-term, you know, type stuff here but, you know, also working on short-term strategies and tactics. But, you know, that when I, when I, after I come out of a room like that and I see some of the efforts and the fact that, you know, some of the folks in this room who are the leaders in our, in our fields, you know, are making great efforts to craft those stories, to take those efforts, to collaborate, to get outside of the politics um, you know, to, to break down the barriers of, of, you know, the different modalities and all that, you know, when I see those efforts taking place, that's, that's what creates that, you know, that diplomat in me or that optimist, call me a, a corny optimist, you know, guilty as charged. But I, I know that there are people that are trying to make a difference and to improve. And I, you know, I know that I can can consider everyone on this call in that group, but there are a lot of other people, including you know a lot of our key leaders that are doing it too. We just we need to continue the effort. But those are people that have taken their profession and made it a career. Those are people that are very adamant what 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 they do. Until the time that people start to look at is EMS as a profession and a career and not a stepping ladder for PA, for nursing, et cetera, it's not mm-hmm. going to happen. No, no, I absolutely see that. I mean, and that's where it comes down to, you know, really trying to elevate EMS as a profession, you know, down to, you know, at, at every level of practitioner. Um, we certainly have a lot of cultural changes that that still need to occur to get us there. How do we make it happen? What things what things can we do to move that idea forward of, of making EMS a profession? Well, you start with the education and actually make it education. And you stop with this puppy mill attitude of training paramedics and really make it so that they have to go to school and come out of it with a bachelor's degree 
that's a that's a first step, and then you can professionalize it. But until then, you can't really do it. And yes, you've heard it all before, Russell. Sorry, same podcast, different day. But <laughs> it really is. I mean, it, that's that's the only way you can do it. You can't do it any other way. You can't expect a group group of trained individuals like we are to um basically make the case other than unionizing like most laborers do blue collar types to hey i'm not a i'm not a worker i'm a professional uh no unfortunately we're all blue collar and we will be professionals eventually when we become a four-year bachelor's trained and educated industry and until then can't say it um other countries can but we can't in the united states Until we get rid of the apathy within our profession, it's going to be a while. True. And I think that's the biggest thing. True. See it Good every point. day. Good point. And until we get this, get, get out of this idea, and uh, I am really sorry. I'm going to offend a lot of people here, and that's okay. But you know what? Every town in the United States does not need its own ambulance service. And every little burg and every little place that does, I I would almost say a thousand calls or less a year should not have its own ambulance service. Just saying. Well, now you're getting into the turf wars. No, it doesn't. No, 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 no. This is my community. I'm gonna I'm gonna do what I want to do. Of course. Get into those issues of control. But but here's the problem: we'll never professionalize the industry until we get past this idea that um, it's my turf, it's my piece of whatever. And we, I think, that we're becoming educated enough as an industry through all these people, through all the podcasters, through all the people that I meet and know to say. Hmm. You know, that's that's the way I was raised and trained. And that was kind of the old mentality, but I'm not going to do that anymore. And I want to make this something for, for people that are younger than I to be able to come out and do it here. Here's the way I see it. 20 years from now, people shouldn't be having the same debate. They should be doing, they should be debating something else. And, uh, the nursing industry figured it out. Uh, physicians figured it out. I think our industry can figure it out for sure. It, it, it'll come. It, it's always going to come down to. It's always going to come down to control. And why do you think this thing in, in in New Jersey is having such a? Why they're facing so much opposition? It's it's that level of control. They don't want to give people don't want to give up the control over something that they see as theirs. So and it'll always be those type of those type of issues will always be there. And I think as long as we continue to put the – and it's funny you mentioned New Jersey because I think this is the root of the problem there. As long as you continue to put the providers before the patients, um, that's when you're going to suffer. And, and we, we need to, to make that transition and, and really try and put our patients first. And, and we really – in a lot of issues, in a lot of, in a lot of instances, we fail to do that. And something, something that I remember is that, is that when a system exists to serve the system, it is no longer serving the people that it's meant to serve. And that's that's kind of what's happening is that they've they've created a system to serve themselves, and they you know the system becomes a you know uh, a, a machine to sustain itself as opposed to sustaining the public that it's supposed to be protecting, and that's basically the issue mm-hmm. that I see. Oh wait, don't talk about public protection and actually doing healthcare at the same time. 
Uh, man, you're killing me. So anyway, so um, so quick question, and this is how we're going to end the podcast because we're way over an hour now, and that always makes me happy when we hit the hour mark because then I actually feel like we actually gave the gave the audience what they want. Uh, regionalizing healthcare is a huge part of what's coming out of Obamacare, and we're, and I'm not talking about regionalizing in the sense of you and your neighboring county are doing something to make it better. We're talking about large regions that are doing things to better the patient. And if it's truly about the patient and it's truly about those issues, then A, we should never care about a response time the rest of the time that we live because we should stick AEDs in every police car in the United States and forget about this idea that cardiac care is the gold standard uh, or cardiac arrest is the gold standard for response time, A, and B, we should figure out that making making people pain-free in our industry is just as important as taking them to hospital, delivering babies, other things like that, and and really taking care of people, not not protecting the public or not being a public service agency or whatever you want to cap, whatever you want to push that as. And I think we can protect the public while we while we do all of those things and really care about them. And uh, that's just that's just my two cents. Last last thoughts before I wrap this. Pain relief is a good thing, and we do too little of it, at least around here. Agreed. Okay, you're all, you're all killing me. You're all killing me. All right. <laughs> so uh, I will wrap on that note. Um, Miss, Since you're the last one, Miss Sam Bradley, where can people find you and find out more information and follow your tweets or whatever? Well, I am Sam Bradley 11 on Twitter, and I kind of live at FRN TV, First Responder Network TV. Um, so you can follow that hashtag on Twitter. You find me on Facebook under Sam Bradley, and uh, pretty much that will lead you anywhere. If you the uh, email s Bradley at First Responders Network TV, and uh, there you go. Right on. And First Responders Network is the sweet thing between you and Justin Shore and Ted Setla and those guys, the gang over there. So they're doing a great job. And so thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. The video to your audio. Well, yes. And, you know, quite honestly, let the video guys do the video because I don't get it. It's really hard. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a really lot. It's a lot of hard work. And anyway, so, uh, also, so Russell Stein, where can people find you? Um, I am hybrid medic on Twitter. Uh, I'm also hybridmedic.com on EMS blogs network, the, uh, the awesomeness blog network. And, uh, I'm also facebook.com slash hybridmedic. So on any of those uh, outlets. Right on. And are you blogging about your whole experience or no? Um, I am here and there. Uh, I'm kind of taking notes right now about it. and It hasn't really started to get bad until now, uh, especially last night when I pulled out a tuft of my own hair. So, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's, uh, 
It's interesting. I'm learning a lot about uh, I'm learning a lot about blood chemistry uh, in addition to uh, to seeing some IV technique. And I actually had to promise the nurses at the uh, the the oncology nurses that I wouldn't I wouldn't try to critique their style because I mean they start <laughs> as many they start as many IVs in a day as I do. So you know I, I did I did criticize their 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 uh, their size of catheter the first day, and I said you know I probably shouldn't do that. You guys do do this a lot. So I'm just going to leave it alone. Next time you ought to reach over and grab it out of their hand and stick it in your vein and go, see, told you I could get it. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I told them I wouldn't look and, and, and they, uh, they always have, they always, they always get nervous when I come in because uh, they, they always better get it on the first try. Right on. Well, thank you. And uh, Mr. Scott Keir, hello, nurse. How, uh, tell us where people can find you. I was saying hello to our, our, our little friend listening there. Um, you can find me uh, She's a nurse. as part She's of the a nurse. Yeah. Yes, she is. You can find me uh, on the First Responders Network as well at uh, medicsbk.com. Um, you can find me on Twitter at medicsbk, and you can now find me on Facebook as well at facebook.com slash medicsbk. Uh, anything out there that says medicsbk uh, most likely belongs to me. Right on. And, and very soon you'll see him in a gutter in Vegas drinking heavily. Not yes, please. Nice. Yeah. I'll be I'll, right I'll, there I'll... with him. <laughs> <laughs> Holding each other up. Exactly. Very nice. Uh, Mr. Kyle David Bates, where can people find you? And you've got to plug the podcast to talk about PIO because I'm going to let Chris and David do that soon, too. All right. Uh, well, we had an episode several, several episodes ago on firstfewmoments.com. Um, our last episode we just recorded last week was called Who is Tima? Talking about traffic incident management areas and basically how not to get waffled alongside a roadway. Um, and then also the other project is PDU, P-E-D-I-D-S-U.com, where we have physicians, especially Dr. Lou Romig and Dr. Peter Antevy. And our last episode, we recorded Summertime Fun and talked about heat emergencies and drownings with kids. A lot of great information in that podcast. Absolutely phenomenal uh, information. And both of those podcasts now come with learning objectives. So training officers, feel free to to use those for your continuing education uh, on that. But you can also find me at KyleDavidBates.com and on Twitter at ImageMedic. Very cool. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you, Chris. Mr. David Koenig, where can people find you? It's not about me, Chris. It's about it's, your listeners. It's always about you. Though. No, it's about your listeners. And since we brought up the PIO subject, uh, just uh, turn everyone's attention to PIOsocialmediatraining.com. Uh, it's something that uh, I do with Greg Freeze, and uh, uh, we've, we've involved a couple of other people regarding uh, PIOs and training them on how to use social media uh, to get the message across to uh, their communities. Uh, Greg's going to be presenting at EMS Expo on social media. I think his session is on Thursday afternoon, and uh, attendees are going to receive a free copy of uh, our electronic book, the uh, Social Media Policy Guide for First Responder Agencies, version 2.0. It's going to be an updated version, so uh, if uh, anyone's going to be attending the EMS Expo, they definitely want to check out Greg's session on social media, and if they can't make it or they want to jump in right now, go to PIOsocialmediatraining.com, and they can sign up for the boot camp and check it out. Very cool. Well, thank you. Uh, very cool, as Greg Freeze would say. And you guys do a great job of that, and it's really awesome. So thanks. I appreciate it. 
finally, the lovely Carissa Karamanis O'Brien. Where can people find you and, uh, you know, all that good stuff that you do? <laughs> uh, you can find me at Carissa O on Twitter. You can find me at CarissaO.com. And, of course, you can find me on for the ProMed Network at ProMedNetwork.com. Right on. I was just... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm just really excited for what the next few months are uh, have in store for for all of us. And apparently, I need to add to my job description uh, taking care of Scott and Sam because they're scaring me with their Las Vegas talk. <laughs> hey, we have a designated driver, Scott. At least <laughs> terrific. A designated uh, nurse. Make sure make sure you pick me up out of the gutter as well. Anyway, so I'm enjoying <laughs> that. Um, you can find me on a brand new show called Innovation Zone on EMS One. We're going to be debuting that this month, July. And this this episode actually comes out July 1st. I think our first episode of Innovation Zone on EMS One will come out sometime mid-July-ish. And it is a product review show where you get to see me actually tell you what I think about products and whether I think they... Well, I won't, I won't ever say that they suck, but I will always give you my true opinion about them. And uh, it's a lot of fun. And I'm pretty excited to be producing... Or I'm pretty excited to be hosting that uh ray kemp is producing it and it's a lot of fun and he was out here a couple days ago and we shot a bunch of episodes in my hot garage and at the ambulance here and we were sweating it was like 90 degrees and it was hot and miserable but he kept a good attitude and so did i so it was a lot of fun um also joining me at the mm, pinnacle conference in miami florida at the end of july if you're if you're gonna be down there stop in and say hi we're going to be doing some episodes down there and hanging out uh probably on south beach doing you know whatever you can do on south beach in miami in july it'll be hot it'll be fun and we'll be getting some beach time in as well thank you very much i'm geeky medic the uh host of this show and a lot and i enjoy hanging out with this band of brothers and sisters talking about ems and and just trying to further what we do in our industry it's a lot of fun and and i really appreciate you listening to us you can hear us on stitcher as always you can hear us on itunes and of course our website emsgarage.com join me next time when we talk about more issues that concern you in ems have a great day night weekend or shift wherever you are (laughs) 